the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed he is, and a belated happy 4th of July to you. (laughs) Catching up on your calendar, today would be the 5th, and it would be a... Wednesday already. Time flies when you're having fun, but we've got a good program for you tonight. So uh, without any further ado, I just want to jump right in because it's going to be a we had yesterday off today. They're going to make up for it. It's going to be a busy day for us. All right, let's dive in first. As you know, we are seeing interesting things happening back with the Supreme Court in largely response to an attack and assault on liberties at multiple levels in multiple states across our nation. But I don't want you to think that just because of some of the recent SCOTUS decisions that were out of the woods yet, lots of work yet to be done. With details, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, joins us. Counselor, you know, we talked probably two, three years ago when California began passing legislation related to gender dysphoria. And I recall saying repeatedly at the time, it's only a matter of time before somebody uses these laws for unscrupulous reasons, meaning a young man who decides on Tuesday, you know what, I think I want to hang out with the girls in girls gym class, and so I'm just going to tell them that I consider myself to be female, not male, and I can just get away with all kinds of shenanigans. And it would seem as if my my prediction, while it took a while and, and had to go a couple of states north to Washington, uh, has nevertheless come to pass. Tell us what's going on here in the case of a issue related to the Washington Human Rights Commission and a Christian family there that is kind of on the receiving end of just simply trying to protect clientele. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's in Olympia, Washington, near Seattle, and we're, it's involving a Christian uh, Korean family. They have a Korean spa and, uh, for women, and a man comes in and says, uh, "I hey, I see myself as a woman. Uh, I want to go in there in the spa. They said, no, no, we have mothers and daughters in there. And this is a Korean spa, uh, which means, you know, they don't use clothes in Korean spa at all. So this man was insisting on it. They said, no, we will not. They stood by their their guns, and this person contacted the, the Washington Human Rights Commission, uh, who has now has now filed a lawsuit against this Christian-owned Korean spa, insisting that they should be uh, allow this man to be there where the women and girls are, totally naked, uh, exposing himself at all, the whole time uh, to to women, to mothers and their daughters. And uh, this is it's sick, it's demented. And we at Pacific Justice, we don't take it lying down. We're very serious about this, and we've uh, stepped in, and we're, we're representing uh, this uh, wonderful Christian-owned Korean spa. You know, 
As I said, it, it really doesn't at all surprise me that somebody would come in and claim, oh, yeah, I want to hang out with the girls. And I, I, I identify as a woman, even though clearly the, uh, the evidence would suggest otherwise. And I would imagine we're going to continue to see more and more of these cases, not only people taking advantage and, and essentially abusing things, or in another case where up in the Pacific Northwest again, uh, simply teachers being penalized for expressing and exercising their first amendment rights. Is it really true that a couple of middle school teachers have been placed on academic leave and then fired because they expressed their personal viewpoints? That's exactly what happened. These uh, two teachers, uh, solid Christian teachers, they have their convictions. And so on their own personal website, they said, you know, we think it's good policy so uh, to recognize the conscience of teachers, not to violate it by forcing them to use pronouns to affirm confusion in a child, much less lie to parents about it. Well, because of that, they were reported, someone saw them on the Internet, uh, reported to the administrators of the school district. They did an inquisition, fired them. We then stepped in. We filed a lawsuit on their behalf. We got their jobs back, and now we're suing uh, and, and taking them to court, taking the uh, school, the school uh, district to court for damages, and uh, we're uh, very aggressive in our litigation. Wow, I, pretty pretty bold in that case, and in another case, uh, this one back in the uh, the Midwest again. Uh, another scenario where somebody was essentially punished by losing their job. Uh, tell us what happened here in the case of the, the Christian caretaker in the state of Michigan. Yeah, this Christian caretaker, she was just having a conversation with um, someone, another fellow worker, and they're uh, you know in the in the uh, caretaking place and about her beliefs and convictions. Uh, regarding, uh, you know, the, the issue of, you know, affirming and encouraging gender identity confusion and, and the like. And, uh, another coworker overheard her and reported her for expressing her opinion. And the coworker was a very intolerant, uh, belligerent LGBTQ activist. And, uh, so we at Pacific Justice Institute have stepped in, uh, to defend this uh, employee, this wonderful, loving care worker uh, who has been attacked uh, simply because of a conversation she had with another co worker. She's been fired, and now we're, we're representing her. And I know that there are probably dozens, hundreds of cases like this unfolding across the country. And I, I do any of these, in your opinion, counselor? I mean, I guess under worst case scenario, they might head in that direction. But in, in terms of just simple national codification of some of these things, and I think it's it's at a level shameful that we need to remind people of what the First Amendment is all about. But I'm just wondering, I mean, we're going to continue to see cases of this as this debate over gender dysphoria continues to heat up. Where do you see this going legally? Yeah, it's, it's going to continue to increase in intensity, uh, but we at the Pacific Justice Institute are very optimistic. Uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, on the case of the, um, you know, the graphic design expert, that was about free speech and the constitutional rights of individuals not to be forced to lie or say something that uh, they don't agree with. 
Uh, this is it's a very, very broad decision, actually. We think it's going to be helpful for some of these uh, cases moving forward. Uh, definitely helpful. And then along with, uh, you know, uh, reasonable accommodation of sincerely held religious beliefs, that's another decision. They, they, they really firmed up that standard, which is going to help so many of our clients all across the country that we're representing without charge. Now, the reasonable accommodation, let's talk more about that. Uh, that, of course, groundbreaking, uh, I think uh, critically important, particularly in the case of the example of the postal worker who had, when, when he applied for the job, said, hey, I'm willing to work any shift. I'd like Sundays off because uh, that's the day my family and I go to church. And he really got literally strong-armed into working on Sundays when the post office entered into a delivery contract with Amazon. Uh, I can hardly get my mail on time on a Saturday, let alone knowing that they're willing to deliver, but only for Amazon on Sundays. And so that notion of reasonable accommodation, I'm sure, is going to be be a curiosity to a lot of folks eavesdropping on our conversation today here, counselor, that say, you know, I've run into similar situation on my job where I've asked for Christmas off or something. And, uh, you know, I've been willing to work other holidays in exchange for those days off. And I've got nothing but but harassment or pushback from the boss. Um, What are folks in those kinds of scenarios based on this now uh, fresh SCOTUS decision need to be thinking about or doing in order to protect their rights? Well, in the past, employers just had to show that accommodating a religious employee uh, was just was some you know more than just an inconvenience, and that was it. And they could just not accommodate them. Well, now an employer has to show substantial costs or expenses um, in order to justify not accommodating employees' sincere religious convictions. So, if anyone has any kind of issues like that. You know, we're helping many with the COVID vaccine mandates that had strong religious convictions uh, regarding that, uh, and we're not we're not accommodated. Anyone at all, uh, they should not hesitate to contact us at our website pji.org. We represent them without charge, and uh, the game's changed. Uh, we've got a great Supreme Court, and workers now have more religious freedom protection in the workplace than ever before. And again, information available on the web by going to pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation, 520 here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. And I want to spend a couple of moments on a topic that, frankly, should really get two hours rather than a segment, which means we'll probably be talking about this more in the future. But it is a subject matter that some may have some familiarity with, at least to a degree, imagine yourself being in a situation where you were raised in a home that was largely dysfunctional as a child, later on went into a marriage that ultimately became dysfunctional. Meanwhile, you're trying to balance the responsibility of being involved in ministry leadership and setting guidance for young people while you're struggling with all of these issues behind the scene. Ultimately, perhaps, to have a diagnosis that would suggest that part of the struggle, undoubtedly maybe even part of the reaction to what you've been through, both as a child and later as an adult, can be tied into bipolar diagnosis. That describes in part the experience of my next guest, 
She is the visionary behind the book that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now called Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success. And with us is lead author, editor, art director of Leading Hearts magazine, Amber Weigand Buckley. And Amber, great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Craig, for having me on the program. Wow. I mean, an astonishing subject matter, not one that I know is is easily talked about, which maybe yes. leads to my first and one of the more uh, important questions to launch our discussion, and that is, why go public with something like this? I mean, I, I think all of us have skeletons in our closet. You know, I don't know anybody yeah. that, that hasn't gone through some dysfunctionality, either in their childhood or in their marriage or a combination of two. Yours is a bit more complicated than that. Why, why choose to be very open about this? Is it weird to say I was tired of lying for God? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I just really felt that I was living in a mask to be welcome to the table of leadership when all I wanted to do was heal and be honest and not have the face on all the time. And I realized that I was given um, such a place to be vulnerable and have the courage to step out and be brave and step out first that I would bring a lot of healing to a lot of people. And I realized my calling wasn't to be fake wasn't to put on the mask, go in, you know, and just do my job. My job was, my purpose was to really help unleash true healing in vulnerability and honesty. And that's what I wanted to say, because I'm tired. Chris, I don't know about you, but I am tired of wearing the suit. Yeah, you know, ironically, and, and, and I think a lot of people perhaps can relate to this, especially those of us that have been involved in ministry, we're involved in the church, we're struggling with issues at home, maybe there's it's a bad marriage, a wayward child, whatever the case might be, and yet we've been kind of raised with the sense of, well, you know, we have appearances to keep up. I mean, after all, you know, my, my spouse is, uh, you know, the head Sunday school teacher. How would it be if people exactly. knew that we had a son that had a drug problem, or my husband is the pastor of the church? I don't dare admit that he comes home and screams and yells and has a major, uh, um, you know, anger problem and, and, and occasionally even abusive towards the kids. I mean, after all, we, yeah. we tend to keep up appearances. We think we've convinced ourselves for ministry's sake. And so we say silent. Yeah. But isn't it also ironic? And maybe you can speak to this. Yes. Isn't it ironic that, that oftentimes we, 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 we stay quiet about these things because we yes. want to not embarrass the, the, the kingdom. We don't want to embarrass our families. And yet how often will people people say, I'm struggling with issues, and I'm fearful of saying anything or getting help because I feel as if I'm the only one. And I suppose we kind of, we kind of uh, help to, to set off that vicious cycle when nobody's willing to talk about it. Nobody's willing to talk about it. You know, I, I believe that, you, you know, we talk about generational curses all the time, but, you know, some 
generational curses would be <laughs> broken if we could have honest conversation and not be in the rebuttal mode when our kids come up and say, Mom, Dad, you have a temper problem. Mom, Dad, I'm, you know. So these situations can be broken. And why do we stay broken? Why do we want to stay broken to keep up appearances? Who are we trying to look good for? Not God knows what we look like. Who are we trying to look good for? It's time we have authentic healing. Now, I know about keeping up appearances because my husband's British. Uh-huh. I mean, that's all. <laughs> my husband is very British. And for people to know that he had a very severe temper problem uh, that I, you know, it wasn't evident in our early marriage, but as we got, you know, into the into the realm of, well, often he did this and that was, or he threw something across the room and that was acceptable. And then you kind of just let, the, let that gradually work up until we had children and then everybody has to be quiet because dad is, you know, you don't want to flare up dad, um, but I don't want to, you know, he had his own issues that he never got to talk about because of the nature of how he grew up. I mean, for goodness sake, his, his, his mom, and, mom and dad never even, you know, it was like, here's a handshake, you know, so, you know, those genuine heart connections, are we going to live with authenticity? Authenticity. Are we going to show our kids that there's a better way to be? And we can't be better unless we address some of these things. And we let actually our kids kind of talk about those things. That, hey, mom, dad, this really hurt when you do did this. And I, I've had to say, yeah, yeah, it really did. When I have my um, bipolar rampage and I was cussing out my kids, <laughs> going in there with a ministerial license and cussing out my kids and, you know, all the way out. <laughs> why, why do we feel like we have to keep that under wraps? Why do we... Why do, that's never going to heal. That's never going to heal unless we seek healing. And I had desperately had to seek healing out because it was killing me. It was killing me. It got me to the point where I almost committed suicide. And, you know, I think in these cases sometimes, Amber, we we feel as if while we've got our own reasons for keeping quiet, personal embarrassment, embarrassment of the family, embarrassment to ministry, whatever the case might be, I would wonder, too, if there's an element here where sometimes we feel as if our particular circumstances, our problem, is just mm-hmm. too great, too overwhelming. And we, we we may not articulate it like this, but I'm wondering if, mm-hmm. if in kind of the recesses, the corners of our mind, we're thinking, this is, this is bigger than what God's grace can cover. <laughs> well, you know what, um, and you talked a little bit about that to, to start with, because um, my dad was, if he would have been allowed to be diagnosed um, at the time he was in, you know, he was working for the church, um, 
the pastor of our church said, I just pray through. You don't need medication. Well, on his, on, and my dad was very angry. He was very, he shouldn't, you know, he really probably couldn't, have, couldn't keep up with five kids. It was not a good thing for him. But at the same time, on his, on his deathbed, on my dad's deathbed, God showed me my dad's heart and he said, Amber, your dad loved you as much as his human physical body knew love in this life and knew how to express love in this life. And we don't even make any allowances for beings that being made of dirt and bones. We are made of dirt and bones. Surprise! Bones break. Dirt is dirty. Can we get? Can we? Can we be okay with that? Can we be okay with? And the beautiful thing of our dirt and bones and our dirtiness and our breaking, God took his own breath and breathed right into our lungs to move those bones and dirt and to make something of purpose that he said it was good and he loved. And isn't it encouraging to know that at the end of the day, even while we're in the middle of our trial, it, it oftentimes is difficult to see this or embrace this. But at the end of the day, to understand that there is nothing beyond his grace, his restorative power, his ability to come in, bring healing, allow us to confront these challenges, and at the end of the day, turn around and use it for good. You know, what the, the scripture tells us, what the enemy is intended for evil, God can turn around and use it for good. Um, for other people to know that they're not alone in this struggle, and that there is victory, and that the resources are available, you've got to be willing to take the first step. This is a conversation that, frankly, is too important to to relegate to just a segment. But uh, time is what it is. But, Amber, I'd love to have you on again uh, so we can dive into this subject matter a bit deeper. Amber, as I mentioned, is the lead author and visionary for a new book called Leading Ladies, Discover Your God-Grown Strategy for Success, newly published by Bold Vision Books. And um, you can get more information online by going to leadinghearts.com. That's leadinghearts.com. Amber is the um, editor and art director of that magazine. So details on the web there. The book, of course, available through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Leading ladies, discover your God-growing strategy. English, Craig. (laughs) Your God-grown strategy for success. Amber Wigan Buckley, thank you so much for the time, as brief as it is. And we'll look forward to having you back on so we can dive into this topic much more deeper. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. From the uh, intensity of our last conversation, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. And and I have to tell you, when I first saw this book, I thought, nah, I don't know. And then I started flipping through it and thought, 
Gee whiz, I'm starting to have a flashback here. I can remember as a kid in the kitchen uh, helping along <laughs> the uh, the primitive assembly line, we'll call it, uh, preparing mason jars and the like as things were being steamed to sterilize them and a huge pot of Japanese plums, many of which I had helped pick because I was the guy that could scurry up the tree and grab the ones high up, right? And preparing what eventually would be the the crown jewel of so many breakfasts. There is nothing like homemade toast with homemade preserved Japanese plums from your own backyard. Wow. I have never allowed the uh, the canning bug to bite, uh, though I might after this conversation, and you're going to learn a lot as we're joined by Diane Devereaux. Diane is known nationally as the canning diva. She's got a number of books out on the subject matter. Uh, her current one in front of me, Canning Full Circle, From Garden to Jar to Table. And uh, she'll shortly have another one released here in August called Meals in a Jar, The Ultimate Guide to Preserving Ready-Made Meals. And Diane, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is an important topic, and people say, Craig, what are you talking about? Canning is important, but, you know, when you when you think in this day and an age about issues related to, we don't know what's in a lot of the preserved food that we buy other than it's loaded down with chemicals. There's always concerns about whether or not this particular chemical may or may not be cancer-causing. And the ability to do something that, frankly, doesn't take a huge skill level, not even all of that much time, but can allow you to not only preserve healthy food that you know every detail of the the ingredients contained therein, whether you do it for fun, for enjoyment of the flavor, or whether you do it because you recognize, and I know this is in part and parcel to your background, folks do it because they recognize, hey, at any given time, we could have supply chain shortages similar to what we experienced during the, the onset of COVID or in a region like the Bay Area where things like earthquakes are constantly a threat, you know, never know that you might suddenly find yourself in a situation where you can't get to the grocery store, you got to feed your family, so what do you do? Exactly, and that is that is pretty much the premise of the Canning Divas. I educate for that reason, um, but I also make it fun. That's why there's, you know, if you notice, there's a little tiara on my mason jar for my logo, because I want individuals, um, young and old, all different backgrounds, um, city or country, it doesn't matter. I want everybody to um, feel secure learning something, like you said, that you know, preserve for your family, have have safe, healthy meals, or just be prepared if something strikes and, and you need access to ready-made food. Your part of your motivation behind this is uh, your experience in working in disaster relief, and, and I I had to smile when I read that uh, uh, you put in almost three months uh, working in Haiti after the earthquake. I was there um, four years ago, and I have to tell you that sadly, in in bigger cities like Port-au-Prince, for example, much of the impact of the earthquake remains to this very day, and you might yeah. recall. 
Montreal that a lot of people fled the city and ended up setting up these these kind of makeshift tents using blue tarp in in mm. the countryside and the mountainside. I'm sorry to report that, um, my goodness, a decade later, all of that is still there. They, they really still haven't recovered from all of that. Now, Haiti may be an extreme example, but as I mentioned, California, we're in earthquake territory. We're in fire territory. You never know mm-hmm. when something might happen. And so having canned goods that you've made at home, the contents of which you know are healthy and safe, uh, I think is not only vitally important, but I suggested in my opening remarks, it can be enjoyable and a lot of fun, too. Right. Absolutely. Like you were, you know, remembering that amazing Japanese plum that, I mean, that right there, or or a recent one that just came out, it's in the book you have, it's Grandma Gould's, my Grandma Gould's um, green tomato jam. You know, there's a lot of vintage, as they call them, or, you know, historical favorites passed down from generation to generation. You can take a lot of joy and pleasure, especially... For those of your listeners that are gardeners, you know, you're growing your own produce or fruit. And what a what a more amazing way to savor that throughout, you know, the latter years or in our case in Michigan, the winter months uh, by putting it up into a mason jar and keeping that long term. And there's something about opening up a jar and, and that, that wholesome freshness. Uh, I remember my grandmother putting up tomatoes that she would use in pasta sauce, um, olives. Um, certainly, uh, we would go out to um, areas in the Brentwood area. Folks in the Bay Area know where I'm talking about. Brentwood, Oakley, out in that neck of the woods to go and pick apricots and peaches mm. and preserve those. And, of course, I've already mentioned about Dad's incredible plum jam that was just to die for. Uh, <laughs> and so a lot of this can not only be very fun and wholesome, but uh, say a word for some listening that might remember mom or grandma uh, doing candy and thinking, oh, that just seemed like this massive operation that is just too involved, too time-consuming. I could never, ever do that. Well, and you can make it that way, but you're right. To those of you that are afraid to venture into this because you think it's just way too much work or maybe your garden is small or you use a local CSA and you don't garden yourself, you can do half batches and small batches of of various recipes and still be able to feel secure knowing you're, you're doing something healthy for yourself. Um, you've got some food stash away for that rainy day, but it doesn't have to be uh, putting up a hundred jars at a time. I mean, if you want to go that route, absolutely. But there's a lot of individuals, even friends of mine, that they live alone, and you know they're just cooking for one person. So their biggest fear was the amount of time it was going to take, and and they'd have way too much food, and and it was just going to just be overwhelming. And um, when you teach individuals uh, such as myself, you, you break things down in half. Uh, you just cut that recipe in half. Or many individuals that don't want to do you know massive amounts of canning, they've switched gears to using a digital pressure canner. It holds a smaller amount of jars. It's perfect for um, you know I use it for leftovers. I do a lot of meals in a jar with it, but it's perfect for those individuals who just want to have enough on hand, but. You know, they don't want to take up a full Saturday to preserve, you know, 150 jars of tomatoes. Um, There are ways to make it happen that is uh, safe, effective, and then perfect, customizable, if you will, for your personal needs. 
And as I recall, sterilizing the jars and boiling water. Uh, and and forgive me if I'm dating myself here, but I, mm-hmm. I recall, um, I don't know if it was with everything. Maybe it was everything. But I, but I recall after... After the the uh, whatever we were doing, you know, the tomatoes or apricots or whatever, once once the jar was almost filled, um, pouring a bit of paraffin on top to kind of seal it. Is that still done? Not necessarily. No, but my grandma did the same thing. I still actually have paraffin wax, and that's very common for your jams and jellies, your preserves, um, because you fill that pretty much almost to the top of the jar, and now you're just avoiding any air coming into that jar by using the paraffin wax. Nowadays, not so much. Um, It's just easier to use a water bather and allow it to naturally vacuum seal. We've changed the way the lids have been manufactured, and so the paraffin wax has unfortunately phased out quite a bit. However, those of you cheesemakers out there, I know you know wax is still used, so there's still a purpose for it. We've just transitioned away from it in home canning. And so you're suggesting that the 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 capacity of the the mason jar lids to 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 seal. I recall that there was a bit of a, a little bit of a rubber seal in there. The capacity to get an airtight seal then has it been improved? Yes, and they've 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 come a long way making you know our products um, you know safer. They've also made them more I guess you'd say advanced. They found some really great ways to obviously mass produce because. This has definitely come back full circle. I have seen in the last few years canning, home canning has just, it has taken off, especially like you said, after what we, what we went through with the pandemic and, and seeing, you know, store shelves there. Um, we've seen a huge influx in those individuals wanting to learn how to can. So things have gotten a lot more efficient. As far as products go, we've seen digital canners come to the market that we never thought we'd ever see. And I, when I say that, I'm talking low-acid foods. So tomatoes and pickles and jams, that's, that's usually a great place to start when you're new to home canning. But utilizing a pressure canner and putting low-acid foods, and when I say low-acid foods, I'm saying uh, I'm meaning vegetables, uh, chicken pot pie filling, beef stew, chicken cacciatore. I mean, there's a lot of vegetarian recipes out there using mushrooms. We can get a whole meal in a jar uh, by you know using a pressure canner. And and again, you know, we stop. You really start avoiding those trips to the grocery store because you're shopping in your pantry first. And so, between the efficiency of the products and all of the tools they've given us in recent years. There's a lot of really cool things we can do as home canners. And say a final word, if you would, because this is certainly on the minds of all of us these days when we when we look at the price at the grocery store and what inflation is doing to the family budget. Uh, in addition to this being wholesome and a fun uh, process and something the family can get involved with and a great sense of pride that, hey, you know, this is right out of the backyard or I picked the apricots myself. Aren't they good? Uh, but this all also can be a tremendous uh, help to the family budget, can it? Absolutely. And I definitely uh, use that when I teach my students because there are some amazing cost-saving ways to stretch your food budget by utilizing home canning. It also is a great way to save your leftovers because, let's face it, we use our freezers a lot, but we become very limited in space very quickly, especially around the holidays. And then also, 
we don't get the longevity of the storage life with a freezer. So being able to utilize the mason jars and your water bathers and pressure canners, you can extend that life of food for upwards of five years in your pantry shelf. So yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, of, of that longevity that you wouldn't get otherwise had you not learned how to at home can. Wow, fun stuff. And uh, again, more details available inside of Diane's most recent book available called Canning Full Circle from Garden to Jar to Table. She got a new one out, as we mentioned, called Meals in a Jar, the Ultimate Guide to Preserving Ready-Made Meals. That'll be out in just a month. Details available on her website at canningdiva.com. That's canningdiva.com. And our thanks to Diane Devereaux for being with us and uh, helping to not only... uh, tantalize our our sweet tooth but uh, be a little bit more efficient and eat healthier canning full circle from garden to jar to table with diane Devereaux. and now back to lifeline with craig roberts well if you're home in the bay area yesterday you probably uh, heard some of the news yesterday maybe even in your own neighborhood fires 30 of them by the most recent count that were started by largely illegal fireworks on the 4th of July. But all of this ought to remind us that even though we've gone through this incredible rainy season and they're talking about still snowing in the Tahoe Basin and it's July, incredible. Um, Don't think that all that water means that fire season won't exist this year or it's going to be much milder. In fact, some experts are suggesting it may be far worse because there is so much additional vegetation and now that we're into the summer months um, the fires that we saw around the bay area yesterday may sadly be just a precursor to significant threat of fire danger come later on in the fall how to be better prepared well joining me now is john ruiz regional disaster officer with the american red cross northern california coastal region and john thank you so much for taking some time to be with us and i and i guess it's true the the recent fires here in the bay area related to the fourth of july ought to remind all of us of just how how delicate this balance of of the ecosystem and we living in the middle of it as it relates to fire threat can be Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. But yeah, it, it, it takes, sometimes it takes the 4th of July incident like that where we had so many fires to remind people. But we really, living in California, we're in fire season almost 12 months a year. Uh, that, that idea of a fire season uh, may no longer be the case. We, we always have to be ready to, uh, to be able to evacuate when necessary and make sure we have everything we need to sustain ourselves when we do that. And, of course, in addition to that, I mean, even if we're in the middle of dead of winter and the rain is just gushing down, Bay Areans need to always be mindful of the fact that we're also in earthquake country, and many of the experts with the U.S. Geological Survey predict that, in particular, the Hayward Fault Line that runs right smack dab through the middle of the East Bay um, is well overdue to let loose. And so if it isn't fire threat, certainly the threat of an earthquake in the Bay Area that could shut down roads, free ways, schools, certainly access to 
uh, emergency services, even the fire department to make it to your house. Your house may be on fire, but if the road is damaged, they can't get the truck across, you're going to have some problem. That really puts a focus on the importance of self-reliance. Thank God the American Red Cross is available, but you can't be everywhere all the time. So walk us through, if you would, John, in a few simple steps, some of the things that folks should be thinking about right now to be better prepared for not just the inevitability of fire season, but earthquakes as well. Absolutely. Uh, earthquakes can happen at any time, especially in, in the Bay Area. I live in Berkeley, and I live close to the Hayward Fault, and it's something that is a preoccupation of mine constantly. So with the Red Cross, what we encourage everyone to do is to follow three simple steps. The first is to build a kit or get a kit. You can buy one online. You can build it yourself. You just want to have enough uh, material to support yourselves um, and your family. And we, we recommend, as is everyone else, a gallon of water per person per day. And that's for not only consumption, cooking, and a little bit of cleaning. You want to have non-perishable food, a flashlight, some battery-powered radio way to communicate, medication, stuff for your pets. Um, make sure you have copies of your you know, important uh, papers. It, you know, Nowadays, it'd be great to have a cell phone charger in case there is cell service. So you can text people, maps and cash. Those are all great things to have in your kit as well as glasses and anything else that you think you'll need. For me, when my kids were younger, I had clay and markers and paper to keep them occupied. Um, in addition to getting a kid or building a kit, you want to make a plan. You want to make sure you and your family know where to go if you're separated. If there's a fire in the middle of the night or an earthquake and your kids have to evacuate out of the window or go a different way, you want to make sure you have a rendezvous place either in front of your home or nearby that you can all meet, especially if they're at school when something happens. And then third is you want to stay informed. You want to make sure you have those uh, emergency apps on your phone. The Red Cross has one. Alameda County has a, uh, has a way to sign up to get those emergency text messages so you know what's happening. So that way you're informed on where to go, where evacuation shelters are, what roads might be open and closed. That way you can make the best plan for your family if and when something happens. And when you're doing that family planning, let's broaden that quickly because oftentimes people think about getting the kids out, you know, getting the valuables, the passports, things of that sort out of the house, having a place where we can gather together if the family is separated, say an event happens in the middle of the day and the kids are at school, mom and dad are at work, whatever the case might be. One group of the family that always, unfortunately, ends up uh, being kind of on the, the, the short end of the preparation stick, and that is our family pets. And, uh, boy, having a plan in place for them, critically important. It's always tragic when you hear about cases where there's been, you know, fires and animals have been lost because they got afraid and they hid in the house and the house burned down. Or, or even if you're lucky enough to get the kids out of the house, oftentimes emergency shelters, you know, they, they're, they're ill-equipped to, to accommodate family pets. So what does one do? Yeah, that's a great point. And we're, we're, we've seen over the past you know, 20, 30 years that pets are going to come, people with pets are going to come to our shelters. And the Red Cross now allows uh, pets to be in shelters with their families because just because we realize it's an important part of someone's plan. So you want to have materials ready to go. If you know that a fire is imminent, if you hear of a red flag warning or if you hear of, the commu- of your emergency management uh, team telling you to be ready to evacuate, get, get a leash Make sure you have a harness or some way to carry them, a transporter, carrier. You want to have some food, water for them as well. A, a bowl would be great. Um, if they take any medication, you want to want to grab that as well. And you know, for some of our animals, they do have extensive medical histories. You want to have that with you as well. 
uh, even a first aid kit for your pets. All those things are important. Um, when you come to the shelter, be prepared to support yourself and your pet for a little while. We, we will we will be able to, um, you know, through the generosity of our donors and others, supply some material. But we really ask pet owners to come prepared to take care of their own pets, uh, either in the shelter or outside that they, they don't have, um, they're not lacking of anything. If you can, get in microchips, make sure you have photos of them. Uh, and really, you know, it's almost like looking at them like as they're your children, which, you know, in many families they are, and have all the things you would have for your children uh, equally ready for your pets. Because when you leave, in some cases, it might need to be in you know, the middle of the night, like you said, you don't have time to think. So having that stuff pre pre-planned, ready to go in a go bag, is going to be your best bet. And if it's a fire that's gotten out of hand, uh, you know, you might have gone to bed at 10 and everything was okay, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, the fire marshal is rapping on your front door and you're being told you have 10 minutes to get out. Uh, earthquake, even less time. And and so maybe even thinking through to having as much as we would talk about having a go bag for the family, maybe a go bag that includes little Fido or Fluffy might not be a bad idea as well. If folks want to get more information, are there lists, are there preparatory lists lists or or a tip sheet available anywhere john to your knowledge absolutely they can just go to redcross.org and look up what information they need we have a plethora of information there to talk to people about getting more information getting help being prepared donating uh that way they can take a look build their own plan um be informed on what what to do and and make sure that they're ready for when that disaster occurs. John, you guys do a fabulous and incredible job. We appreciate all of you in the American Red Cross for uh, all that you guys do in every natural disaster uh, down through decades. So thanks to you and your colleagues, John Ruiz, Regional Disaster Officer for the American Red Cross Northern California Coastal Region. Again, details available on the web at AmericanRedCross.org. That's American AmericanRedCross.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.